Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Whenever I encounter an improbable, dramatic historical event, and with this show, that's all the time, there's something I like to ask myself, and I think a lot of people do this. I like to ask, how would I feel if I encountered this in a work of fiction? Would I buy it? Because fiction has to abide by rules. Fiction has to walk a fine line about what you will and what you will not accept. Otherwise, that willing suspension of disbelief goes away. You don't accept the characters, the story, the situation, any of it. Fiction, in a certain way, is more bound and more constrained than anything that happens in reality. Because reality doesn't have rules. Reality doesn't have tropes or narrative conventions. Reality has the luxury of being completely over the top, or on the nose, or weird, and no matter how improbable, or strange, or violent, or, in this case, really kind of horrifyingly ironic it is, you just have to accept it. It happened. The criticisms that you would give to a piece of fiction just aren't applicable. Mussolini's end is like that. If I were watching a movie or a TV series about Il Duce, and the writers gave it the ending that Mussolini actually had in real life, I'd say, that doesn't work at all. It's way too on the nose. It's way too appropriately ironic. I'd say this is badly written, you know, try to try to make it a bit more like gritty and realistic or whatever, but the horrifying end that Mussolini had actually happened. So here we are. In 1943, Italy signed an armistice with the invading allies. Mussolini was stripped of his power and thrown in a prison cell. As part of that armistice, Italy immediately declared war on Nazi Germany. Southern Italy was occupied by the forces of Britain, the United States, Free France, a few other Allied fighters, and the North was soon invaded by the Germans. Those tanks moved steadily down the Italian boot toward Rome. Part of that German advance was a paratrooper squad springing Mussolini from his cell. That squad had been specially selected by Nazi high command for its mission because Mussolini was a valuable commodity for Hitler. With Mussolini in his possession, Germany could create a puppet state in northern Italy. Instead of Germany merely occupying territory in the north, they could claim that their chunk of Italy was true Italy, was a legitimate state, that it was the allies who were the occupiers, and that it was the Nazis who were the, well, allies. After all, Germany was in possession of the former leader of the recognized Italian state, weren't they? So, the northern half of the Italian boot became known as the Italian Social Republic. Its capital was ostensibly the eternal city of Rome. However, Rome was in chaos. The entire peninsula was kind of exploding into guerrilla warfare and civil warfare, so the state was governed, if you can say it was governed at all, from the mid-sized city of Salo in northern Italy. So the Italian Social Republic, it's often known as the Salo Republic, they're the same thing if you see them in print. 
And for the second time in his life, Mussolini was elevated to dictatorhood when Germany put him in charge of the new social republic. Now, once he gets his freedom back, and once he gets a little bit of authority back, Mussolini's first order of business as the head of the social republic? Revenge. At this point, Mussolini was in decline. He was often depressed. Uh, apparently, he was also in poor health. But in this instance, he still had some fight in him. He was determined to round up those members of the Grand Council of Fascism that voted to have him stripped of power, and, if he could, have them shot. Most members of the Grand Council had fled to Allied control territory, or they were in hiding. Mussolini was only able to find six of them. But among those six was one very, very important member of Mussolini's old fascist government, Galaziano Ciano, the former foreign minister, also Mussolini's son-in-law. Ciano was married to Mussolini's daughter, Etta, and for years he had been kind of a son and political protege of Il Duce, he served several positions in his government, and for years, Ciano was often the international face of Italian fascism, hobnobbing with ambassadors, foreign dignitaries, you know, whoever, and it was often his job to give fascist Italy a conventional sort of face. He seemed like a sort of normal official or politician, and Mussolini was back in Rome being, you know, Mussolini. As the Allies were invading Italy, Ciano knew all too well how the international situation was going to play out. He pretty much knew that the liberation of Rome was inevitable. Also, think about his position. Had he been one of those people who voted in favor of his father-in-law? Well, who knows what the majority of the Grand Council would have done to him. Or when the Allies invaded, who knows what they would have done to Mussolini's, you know, friends, the people who stood by him. It was definitely in his long-term political interest to vote to topple his father figure from power. So it was a wise move on his part. He couldn't have predicted Mussolini being rescued by a bunch of German paratroopers, Germany making a fake country in northern Italy, Mussolini being returned to power, and then Mussolini ordering his forces to hunt him down. That would have seemed very improbable on that night in the hall of the map of the world. But... Ciano was indeed captured by Mussolini, and Mussolini ordered him killed. Mussolini's daughter, Etta, pleaded with her father for him to not kill her husband. It didn't work. Despite his previous relationship with Ciano, and despite the pleas of his daughter, Mussolini had his former son-in-law shot, as well as his five other colleagues. They were put to death by firing squad, and supposedly Ciano's last words were, Viva Italia. Years later, Ciano's son, Fabrizio, wrote a book about the incident. It was called Quando il nono fece fucliare papa, or When Grandpa Had Daddy Shot. I'm sure that Fabrizio was fine and grew up without any daddy issues whatsoever. And after killing his former foreign minister slash son-in-law, Mussolini still attempted to maintain a relationship with his daughter Etta, he still wanted to be all daddy dearest even after he killed her husband. They did not have the greatest parent-child relationship after that. But back to the Social Republic. On paper, Mussolini was at his most powerful when he was the head of the new republic. 
Previously, he'd been subordinate to a king. Il Duce had been the head of the Italian government, but King Victor Emmanuel, he was the head of state. Even as he was giving grand manic speeches, proclaiming empire, putting his face on buildings, once a week the dictator paid a visit to the royal palace to have everything approved by the king. And when he did this, he did it with his hat in his hand, dressed in a suit, and eschewing the fascist uniform that he was normally seen in. He talked with the monarch, informed him about the state of the nation, and made King Victor Emmanuel think, you know, he's maybe still in the driver's seat. However, in the social republic, Mussolini was the only official power. He was the head of state and the head of government. Technically, he answered to no one. Technically, the social republic was his to command. But, unofficially, all major decisions had to go through Germany. The government, the military, and everything else was completely subject to Nazi governance, and in reality, Mussolini was little more than Hitler's puppet. Also, the Social Republic accounted for nothing internationally. No other country except for Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan bothered to recognize it. Not even Francoist Spain, which was sympathetic to Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, bothered to recognize it. France, the UK, the US, the USSR, they were all kind of technically at war with the Social Republic, and none of those countries saw fit to even recognize it as real. To them, Northern Italy was just more German-occupied territory, and things were never calm in the Social Republic. Mussolini was not able to exert any real control over his land. Roving bands of resistance fighters, some socialist, some communist, others of other ideologies, they made trouble all the time for Il Duce's new state. And outside of Mussolini's new, smaller borders, war continued to grind on through Europe. A war that he was done with, that he couldn't contribute to, that he would not be able to say he was on the winning side of. Now, sometimes Mussolini continued to talk big, to shout out with some of his old bluster. Sometimes he promised that it was all going to come to one grand, big battle at the end of everything. He said at one point that Milan would become the Stalingrad of Europe. But at other times, he knew it was all absurd. It was over. In one interview, he actually got honest with the reporter when he told her, quote, Seven years ago, I was an interesting person. Now I am little more than a corpse. Yes, madam, I am finished. My star has fallen. I have no fight left in me. I work and I try, yet know that all is but a farce. I await the end of the tragedy and, strangely detached from everything, I do not feel any more an actor. I feel I am the last of spectators." Unquote. He said that in January of 1945. A few months later, in April, it was very apparent that the Axis had lost. Mussolini made plans to escape from the Italian Social Republic. He made plans to get out of there with a group of German soldiers who were planning to sneak into Switzerland. One night, looking out on Lake Como, the broken Duce wrote a goodbye letter to his wife and children. To his wife he wrote, quote, Dear Rochelle, here I am, having arrived at the last phase of my life, 
the last page of my book. Perhaps we two will never see each other again. I ask your forgiveness for all the bad things that, without meaning to, I did to you. But you know that you were, for me, the only woman I truly loved. Unquote. After writing those words to his wife, he attempted to sneak out of the country with his mistress. So a group of German soldiers put Mussolini and his mistress into the back of a van, started heading for the Swiss border, and at this point history might have been very different had they not come upon a wandering group of anti-fascist Italian partisans. Now, it's possible that this could have turned into a firefight. The German soldiers and the Italian resistance fighters faced each other, and for either group, the normal thing to do would have been to open fire, to be the first one to open fire, to take advantage of the other group's surprise, but everyone knew the war was over. The Germans knew they had lost. The Italians knew the Germans had lost. Defeat was already at hand. And no one, not the German soldiers, not the Italian resistance fighters, wanted to be among the last people to die in a war. So, instead of exchanging bullets, they talked. The Germans and the Italians mutually decided to not fight with each other, to not go through with an exchange of gunfire. The Germans mentioned that, hey, they had some prisoners in the back of the van they had with them, and that they would happily exchange the prisoners for safe passage into Switzerland. The Italian partisans said that worked for them. We don't know if the Germans revealed just who it was they had to the Italian fighters. We don't know if they made it clear that they were selling out Mussolini himself, as opposed to, say, just some random surrendered prisoners that they wanted to hand off in exchange for being allowed to walk away. What we do know, though, is that the Italian resistance fighters opened up the back of the van and found their former dictator and his mistress. When they found Mussolini, he had attempted to disguise himself. He was wearing a German uniform and helmet and a pair of sunglasses. And this is one of those moments which I think is way too on the nose, that Mussolini, who had become a German puppet, was literally disguising himself with a German military uniform. Yeah, way too much symbolism going on there if you were to actually put it in a movie or an HBO show or whatever, but hey, it happened. This disguise did not work. Mussolini, up until that point, had been one of the most famous people in the world for the past two decades. In fact, more than two decades at this point. He'd made sure his name and his face showed up in newsreels, in newspapers, and again, it was on the sides of buildings. That thin disguise of a German military uniform and a pair of sunglasses didn't cover up his identity. The partisans dragged him and his mistress from the van, and one of the fighters who saw Mussolini later wrote about the dictator's appearance. And apparently he didn't look good. He said that the recent months of being a German puppet and seeing the war lost made Il Duce look spiritually dead. Mussolini and his mistress were held prisoner overnight while the partisans awaited instruction from their commanders in Milan. The next day the orders came. Il Duce would soon not just be spiritually dead, but literally as well. When dawn came, Mussolini and his mistress were dragged from their room. His mistress, Clara, threw herself in front of a bullet to save her lover 
and dictator. She did not save him. She merely died. Shortly after, Mussolini was shot as well. The partisans dragged their bodies, as well as that of a fascist party leader they had also found, into a car and drove them to Milan. Milan, the city that had seen the first rumblings of the fascist movement. If there was an original fascist city, that was it. And here Mussolini is, all the way back at the beginning. In Milan, the partisans hung the bodies upside down in a public square on the side of a gas station. The imagery would have been very apparent to anyone looking at it. Throughout the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, the bodies of convicted criminals in Milan and other Italian cities had been displayed hanging from their ankles as a sign of horror and public shame. Mussolini, who was obsessed with Italian history and culture, was now reenacting a little bit of Italian history and culture in a most unseemly way. A crowd gathered and soon began to point at, jeer at, and abuse the dead bodies. They threw rocks and insults out to hang corpses, urinated on them, and supposedly a woman fired five bullets into Mussolini's dead body, one for each of the five sons who had died in fascist wars. And this seems so improbable for me. This is also where reality starts to look too much like mannered fiction. The man who had risen to power on the popular anger of roving squads and aggrieved Italians and who incited mob violence is now the subject of it. Mussolini also was once again at the front of a crowd, eager for some kind of undefined show of strength, eager to seek out some sort of violent vengeance that would satisfy something, maybe assuage some kind of feeling of powerlessness or humiliation. Mussolini had taken that anger in Italians, Italians who had perceived themselves, wrongly they thought, as lesser than the rest of Europe, and said, look over there, the socialists are to blame, or look over there, these other countries are to blame, or the Africans are to blame, or the Jews are to blame. And he incited that anger, and he threw it over to one place and another, and he fed on it, and now he's the subject of it? That's just too on nose. But it happened. And this incident, where he is hanging dead from the top of a gas station, it's probably one of the most dramatic public appearances that Mussolini ever made, and it's also a grim inversion of so much of his career. By the way, to this day, there's controversy and mystery about Mussolini's execution, how it was carried out, who exactly pulled the trigger, all of that. It's a kind of fascinating murder mystery, one that I will go into in a supplemental episode, but more on that later. And one wonders if Mussolini's execution and post-mortem humiliation influenced Hitler. It's entirely possible that the Fuhrer after learning of what happened to his former mentor, decided to kill himself rather than face a similar fate. Two days after Mussolini's death, Hitler committed suicide. One month later, after May of 1945, after the Allied victory of Europe, Italy was reunited, though in ruins. The Social Republic, it had only lasted 19 months. It was gone. And this series has already been quite long. I'm not going to go into what happened to Italy after World War II, but briefly, it's been very different. It's been hectic, very hectic. The Italian government has collapsed several times since the war, but 
On the other hand, in a European parliamentary system, that's not as bad as it sounds. And politics in Italy, for much of the 20th century, they were dominated by the Christian Democrats and the Communists. And Italy did pretty well economically after the war. In the 1960s, the country recovered, and things were steady, rough, but steady. It held that way until the election of a new demagogue, Silvio Berlusconi, in 1994. And Berlusconi was in and out of office until 2011. And as of this recording, in May of 2017, Mario Monti, a centrist economist, is the Prime Minister of Italy. Italy, for all of its chaos and trouble, looks, for the most part, like a mostly normal industrialized country. Mussolini would probably be ashamed of it, and that's probably a good thing. Fascism still shows up. There are modern fascist movements. There are neo-Nazis. There are present-day ultranationalists. They're all too real, but here's the thing. When it's been made the law of the land, fascism has not persevered. Neither fascist Italy nor Nazi Germany survived World War II. War, the thing that fascism purported to be best at and defined by, turned out to be its downfall. And of the other two regimes that are often cited as examples of fascism, Franco's Spain and Perón's Argentina, neither really managed to construct robust functional systems that survived their creators. Which is a good thing, because a functional and self-sustaining, self-replicating system based on inherently immoral ideas about race, exclusion, and militarism would probably be a bad thing. Meanwhile, other systems, not based on semi-mystical ideas of race or nation, seem to perform okay. Yeah, uh, European socialism and American liberal democracy and Whatever it is Japan does, I used to live in Japan and I still couldn't tell you, it seems to work out mostly fine. And I know, there are all kinds of forces attacking democracy, equality, and enlightenment principles right now. We don't need to list them here. They're frightening. They seem powerful. Sometimes they are powerful, but in the short term. I take comfort in the fact that those forces don't seem to be internally coherent. They don't seem to be able to provide a truly enduring alternative narrative about what an ideal society is, at least not one that's not based in some fiction about nationalism, race, or some kind of idealized imagined past. That doesn't mean that those forces opposed to modernity cannot harm or kill or tear down the work that others have done. They can do that. They've been doing that. They will continue to do that in the future. But I also believe that nationalist authoritarianism will crumble under itself, and that those ideologies which purport to be most about strength are, at their heart, fragile, weak, and hollow. And when they fall, and they do fall, we will be able to build something better on top of their ruins. I hope you've enjoyed the series about fascist Italy. I wouldn't say I had a great time researching it and putting it together, but it was fascinating, and it's not over yet. Starting in June, I'm going to be providing supplemental episodes about this series and supplemental episodes to other past episodes of this podcast. Those episodes will be available to people who support the podcast. So, 
If you can't get enough of Joe Streckert talking about Mussolini, don't worry, you'll be able to get even more of it if you want it, and some other stuff. As always, I'm on social media, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast, at Joe Streckert on Twitter. Go on iTunes, give us reviews, ratings, all of that. And I will talk to you next week about something else entirely. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you then. Bye. (laughs) 